Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I caught up with Kat Kood and we chatted about global compliance, what this meant, and what she is personally doing in this space. Kat spoke around public standards on a global scale and why they are so important. She spoke in depth about her opinion on more global standards being rolled out across all industries. If you are keen to learn more, then please keep on listening. Kat, I came across your profile and I was quite intrigued by some of the work that you've been doing. So I definitely like to dive into that work. But before we get started into that, we'd like to start our podcast off with you and telling our listeners about your journey to where you are now. Oh, great. So when I was little, uh, I really wanted to make video phones. <laughs> so I found myself in engineering uh, because I wanted to create a video phone that I had seen in a commercial somewhere. And I actually ended up at RIM, which is now BlackBerry, uh, making some of the first video phones we had. So that was a, it was a really good transition to what I okay. really wanted to do. But uh, when I found myself uh, at BlackBerry, I was there for over a decade. I was doing, ended up doing a lot of software architecture and design. And then um, when I had my own children, I actually left BlackBerry to make my own business. And I thought, you know, a lot of people don't understand the data that they're putting out on the internet and they certainly mm-hmm. don't understand the permanence of what they're putting out there. So I started my company to educate people about how data was being used and abused essentially online and what they needed to understand about their own privacy. Wow. Okay. And so you've been running that for a few years now, haven't you? Yeah, for six years. Six years. Okay. I was going to say about five years. Okay. And so how did you find the transition from working at BlackBerry and then doing your own thing now? Uh, It was a big leap. And Mm -hmm. uh, certainly coming into a company every day with direction is a big difference uh, than doing your own thing. And I find too... Depends on the entrepreneur, but I have probably higher standards for myself than I should. And so I set harder deadlines than other people would. And Mm -hmm. working for myself then, of course, means I I set out a lot of work to get done in a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And so are you liking sort of the feeling of being your own boss and all that type of stuff? Because we do have a number of people who have started their own businesses. So I, I always like to try and ask the question where I can, because there is a lot of technology startups and security startups that are starting. So we try to give a little bit of perspective if we can on that journey and that experience. Oh, absolutely. I was actually, so I'm in Waterloo, Canada, and then we have a really big tech ecosystem. They used to call it Silicon Valley of the North, but Canadians don't like that title. So, uh, but we are, we are a tech-based city and there's a lot of tech incubators, certainly here and all over Canada, but I was in one of them. I was developing a software product uh, to help people with their online reputation. And then I pulled Mm -hmm. back to do consulting. So what I found uh, as a business owner, one of the things you have to understand is it's a long run. It's not an instant gratification. You're not going to start a business tomorrow and be making money three months later. You Mm -hmm. really have to stick out. There are always those pictures online of the roller coaster images, but you really do have to stick out the highs and the lows until you, you even break even, let alone make money on a business. Mm. It has to be something you're passionate about and not just something you think is going to be a quick buck and a quick turnaround. And that's a really interesting point. I did a video on this, I think last week or the week before, I don't know, they sort of blur into the next, but it was about that. I think a lot of people who talk to us because we are heavily involved in the startup community 
think that, cool, I'm going to do this software company. I'm going to make lots of money out of it. And yeah. I'm like, mm, I think you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And it's about, you're probably not going to make a lot of money in the first some players even five years. So what are you going to do yeah. when you're not making the money? What's going to be able to sustain you through the times where you're not? And I think that when you start asking people those questions, they start to think about like, oh yeah, probably should just stay doing what I'm doing. And I don't think really money is when you follow what you love, the money and all that stuff will follow. And yeah. I think a lot of, we're lucky a lot of people in our industry uh, do really care about the work that they're doing because it is something that you can't do it well if you're not interested in it or you don't necessarily care about it. Yeah, I totally agree. But I, I see what you're saying too. I mean, there are a lot of people who you have to be passionate about it because the passion comes through. Like if you're passionate about something, that is how you make money. People are going Correct. to pay you to do something that you're involved and invested in. So Correct. for sure the passion has to be there, but mm -hmm. yeah, understanding that it's, it's time to build a reputation as well. It's not just mm -hmm. about your, you could come fully qualified and educated, but if you're coming, especially in cybersecurity, if you're coming in, in the consulting space, if you don't have experience, if you, you, no one's going to pay you a ton of money off the bat to just come mm -hmm. in and help them with something you've never done before. So it's, it's both building the education and background or whatever it is that you want to work in, but it's also mm -hmm. building the reputation mm -hmm. in that space. You are hundred percent right. So let's dive into global security compliance. Now, this is an area that I know you specialize in. Can you explain a little bit more about what you're doing in this space? Absolutely. So GDPR, which is the general data uh, protection regulation, is the one that came out in Europe in May 2018. And mm -hmm. that has become the privacy standard globally that people seem to keep referring to. It's it's pretty much the most stringent one we have in the world. But I mean, as you know, from Australia, there are privacy acts and privacy policies and regulations all over the world. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them have rules that differ, but it most of them come down to the same thing. In Canada, we have PEPIDA that's supposed to protect the user. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's similar rules. The idea really is to minimize the amount of data you're taking from users to what is just required, allowing the user insight into how you're using that data, and then structuring your product and service in a way that's privacy first, mm -hmm. so that uh, you can support all the privacy and security changes that are coming down the line. And of course, managing incident response so that if it's not, it's not the, if you have a breach, right. It's when you have a breach that you are, uh, you're prepared for that and you're well handled to that. So what I found with these regulations all over the world, but especially GDPR is they come as a legal framework. They're designed from a legal perspective. So one of the things for GDPR as an example is data subject access requests. So as a, as a person and a data subject, I can ask a company for my data. According to the framework for GDPR, it's just a checkbox. You go to a company, you say, hey, can you provide a data subject with their data? They say, yes. You say, great, you're compliant. Mm -hmm. But from an actual software architecture perspective, when you step back, there's a lot involved in ensuring that you've authenticated that user to make sure you've got the right person. How are you pulling the data from your system? How are you encrypting that data to send it to the user? There's a lot of tech behind just this checkbox. Mm -hmm. And so what I ended up finding with people I was working with is they didn't understand where to start to get to that level of compliance. You can mm -hmm. see where the framework says, here's the checkbox, but how do you get your tech in a perspective, even if it's not 
a technology company, everyone uses tech. So how are you using your technology in a way that complies. So I ended up creating a playbook that basically walks people from privacy foundations and engineering all the way up as a guide to get Mm -hmm. to that framework. Mm -hmm. So why do you think people were confused? You said they didn't know where to start. Do you think they just felt overwhelmed by everything that they had to do and there was no real direction on how to do this? Yeah, that's the nail on the head. There is no direction, right? People are saying, hey, you need to you need to gather consent. And it's like, okay, how do I do that? Where do I store it? What do I do with it? So I find working with tech companies that have been doing technology for a very long time, they have a bit of an understanding of where to start with this. But so many companies are not tech companies that are now using tech and they don't know where to begin to structure their systems and services in a way that supports all these privacy regulations coming down. So the regulation stuff aside, do you think a lot of these companies outside of tech are even considering privacy as a thing? Because I I do speak to a lot of tech companies, but I also do speak to a lot of people who are outside of tech. And when I start discussing this type of stuff with them, it's almost like they're looking at me like they're not really sure what I'm going on about. Does that does that concern you that you think that companies out there don't really consider this at all? Yeah, absolutely. So I find with cybersecurity as a whole, uh, people don't acknowledge the breadth of what it covers. So, mm-hmm. so often I'll say to someone, what are you doing for your cybersecurity solution? And they'll say, oh, we've got a firewall or, oh, we're doing phishing testing. So we're good. Uh, but they don't appreciate the, the different pieces and the different facets of cybersecurity and privacy is a piece. I get asked all the time, what's the difference between security and privacy? Well, security is protecting everything. Privacy is the individual. So mm-hmm. you can you can have all the, the best hardware set up and, and backups and everything that you're doing in place, but you still need to protect the data of the individual. So I, yeah, totally agree. Most companies don't realize how important privacy is mm-hmm. until the breach happens or mm-hmm. until there's some kind of fine. Mm-hmm. I was speaking with a CISO recently and he said that I love compliance because it helps us de-risk a lot of security problems. Can you explain the benefit to organizations, both public and private sectors, as to why global standards are important? Yes. Yeah, so global standards really put the user's privacy at the center of all the design. So it's the privacy foundation. If you are putting a user-centric view on how you design your services, not what's easiest for your employees to access or what's cheapest to store, but how the user's data should be stored. So starting with limiting the quantity of data that you're collecting uh, Mm -hmm. and then ensuring the protection of that data and the transfer of that data, you are eliminating a lot of these risks for breaches. I mean, Mm -hmm. a lot of it is just due diligence to ensure that you've made sure that your data is being limited, like I said, and transferred properly and accessed properly. But that's stepping back to the foundation. And I have seen companies where they're like, it's too expensive for us to go back to architecture and take this apart. But the fines that they end up with a year or two down the line are infinitely more than it would have cost them in resources to have adjusted the foundation to fix for that privacy. So... Just using that incident alone, when they're saying it's too expensive to go back and do all of this and then they get fined, what's the response yeah. after that? Are people sort of, are they coming back to you going, oh, you were right, should have uh, should have done it your way? How do people actually <laughs> feel when this is happening and then sort of thinking we ran the risk, we got caught out, and now we're in serious uh, high water? 
Yeah. So I, from my perspective and my business, I focus on the preemptive things, the preventative measures. So often these companies end up with, I get calls often to come in for incidents, but that's not my specialty. I don't do forensics. So that's again, another piece of cybersecurity. Um, but that's not something I cover, but yeah. So at that point, they do come back acknowledging the fact that they should have fixed the foundation when they should have fixed it. Um, I did have one company come back to do that, but it's, it's, it's one of those things. It's like identity theft too, with individuals. You don't think it's going to happen to you until it happens to you. Mm -hmm. And so do you think that once it happens, do you think it changes their perspective on, we now need to start looking at preventative measures and getting the right players in people like yourself to help them combat uh, potentially getting fined again. Yeah, absolutely. And GDPR, one thing, great thing about GDPR, because they're finding some of the bigger companies right now, uh, it is highlighting this. It is highlighting for people that there is a problem and that um, you should probably investigate your own data. Like if British Airways, who clearly has the resources to have cybersecurity in place, is being breached, then clearly this is an issue that could affect anybody. Yeah, you're, I agree with you. Let's Okay, so let's touch on some of the other global standards such as HIPAA, PCI DSS, ISO. What's right. your belief in more global standards being rolled out across the board with the overall goal to reduce attacks? So standards have a it's a it's a love hate relationship with companies and standards. I know uh, in the U.S. runs with NIST and NIST is coming out with their own privacy framework. ISO also doesn't have a very specific privacy framework. They certainly do security, but they are also rolling out privacy specific frameworks. Uh, the problem is that there can be a lot of paperwork behind them, and I think that they really need to figure out how to release these frameworks in a way that has a minimal impact on the companies from a procedural perspective, but still highlight the benefits. Like you had said, uh, what, what are we doing to mitigate the risk? I don't think there's enough. We're not highlighting that enough. We're just, Hey, you got to put all these things in place because it protects people. And then companies roll their eyes and oh, I don't have time for this. But if we could really highlight the benefits to the, to the company, not just their users and clients, but to the company of adjusting their, their privacy policies and foundations, uh, they would probably be more inclined to implement these things. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about procedures and things like that, I was talking to someone actually on our podcast a few weeks back, same type of approach. They feel inundated, overwhelmed. There's all of this stuff going on. Why are making it so complicated? Yeah, that's where like GDPR is one of those things where the procedures aren't complicated. It's just the end result. It'll be interesting to see when ISO puts everything out and completed how much detail they require and how like a privacy impact assessment or data protection impact assessment, uh, which is required to be run for your company. It seems like a lot of work because you have to map out the flow of data in your systems and you have to map out your system and you have to review your security policies. But if you do that kind of thing correctly once, even if it takes two weeks to put together, if you do it correctly once, you don't ever have to redo it again. Mm -hmm. You just have to refer back to it and ensure that every time you add something new to your system that you're reviewing to make sure it fits the standards that you want to meet. So mm -hmm. I think that's what people don't realize is it seems daunting, but if you just put in the work 
once, mm-hmm. uh, then moving forward, it's really easy to adjust. So I often compare it to like the foundation of a house. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody cares about the foundation. It's not interesting and it's not pretty. <laughs> like you just, you just want to build your rooms and decorate them. But if your foundation is flawed, it, the whole house is going to fall into the ground. Like you need <laughs> to take the time yeah. to pour it properly and design it properly. And then you can move on and build seven extra flights and stairs and whatever you want. But that foundation has to be strong enough to support whatever it is you want to do to that house. There's something we say internally at KBI, which is measure twice, cut once. Yeah. And I think the same analogy applies for this because I think uh, yes, I, I know what you're saying when you're saying people are like, oh, if I try to maybe do it to like 50%, maybe I can get away with doing it because it is a lot of work and it's a lot of reading of stuff and it's a lot of organizing people and it's a lot of following people up within the organization. So hopefully what what would be some practical advice you could give to people? And I know you mentioned before about getting your foundation straight, but what can people do straight off the bat to ensure doing this once and doing it right will reduce the risk in the long term? Like what can people sort of do practically to take away after this podcast? So practically speaking, it's worth stepping back and seeing where your biggest risk is. Uh, There was a fantastic study actually that came out of IBM with incident response. So that's just one thing to look at. Um, For incident response, they found the average cost to a company for not having a plan in place was close to $300,000 US. And then the average cost to a company for not having done a tabletop exercise and practiced that plan was another $300,000 US. So when you step back and you say, look, it's going to be over half a million dollars of cost Mm -hmm. minimum, really, Mm -hmm. for us not to run this plan it makes sense to to put in even 10 to $20,000, which it wouldn't even cost that much to bring people in and get the plan right. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's cost benefits. So from an incident response perspective, uh, having that's one easy thing. Every company should sit back and say, I need a, I need a bridge or a way to get people together. Cause you can't email information about, um, an incident while it's happening. Cause you don't, mm-hmm want it recorded. So setting up a bridge, figuring out who those stakeholders are and deciding what your process is going to be in the time of that instance. It was the same reason we run fire drills in Mm -hmm. buildings, right? You need to both have a plan and then run that plan. And in running that plan, you will quickly see what you're missing, who you're missing. Um, Do you need templates for communication? Like that's something I offer is templates for internal communication, uh, communication to the authorities and communication to the users. Having those templates in your back pocket is going to save you time and energy from scrambling to send them. So Mm -hmm. one, yes, one definite thing to do, even if, if you're not complying with a lot of regulations is incident response, because that applies to everyone. And it's a plan if you don't already have that, you should take the time to create. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so the steps are get a plan and then run the plan as a simulation. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so let's just go back on GDPR for a second. Now, you mentioned this before, and as you are probably aware, there was a lot of media hype when it initially came out. Do you believe practitioners, as far as you are aware, are implementing these changes effectively? I'm going to say no. Uh, (laughs) most people, 
most people don't seem to understand how to implement them properly. Or again, they're, they're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll deal with that if it happens. And they're not actually putting it in place. Uh, I've heard of several incidents where people have put something in their privacy policy just to check off the box, but in the background, they're not actually doing it. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I don't, I think companies, they said, oh, this will be simple. They looked into it. It was more than they had the time and energy to get it done for May. And they just pushed it through um, in a, a visible way, but not, again, the foundational way. They haven't actually put the things into place to mm-hmm. uh, ensure they can support all of the pieces of, that GDPR might be requesting. So when you said you're not sure why people haven't done this effectively, why do you think that is? Is it, is it again coming down to the procedures? It's all too much work, couldn't be bothered? Sam and Joey aren't doing their job properly, which makes my job harder to do. Do you think it's just coming down to it's all too hard? I'll just kick the can down the road and hope the best. So the number one line I get over and over again from people is we don't know where to start. Okay. So they're stepping back and they're like, I, I ended up creating a 12 page checklist and that is as condensed as I could get it of all the steps that you would need to take to go from zero to compliant. And uh, yeah, some of those steps are simple and some of them are quite daunting, but even something like user education, like every customer facing employee that you have in your company should be able to answer a question if a client calls in and asks a question about what their rights are under GDPR or under any of the privacy acts that they're in, like India is pushing a privacy act. So like every single time another country or region comes with a privacy act, the customer facing representatives should at least have basic knowledge about what that entails and how to answer questions when somebody calls. And that even that little piece of user education isn't happening. I've got a question on that just out of pure curiosity. How often are people calling about their privacy? And in Australia, there's always, here's our privacy, yeah, call us for your privacy. Yeah. I've never personally done it. I don't know anyone yeah. that's done it, but is it like a common thing that people do? So not in Canada either. Like it, okay. Pepit, everyone's like, oh, Pepit is not like GDPR, but it is. It's just, so one of the big differences um, with GDPR is that the fines are actually happening. Um And here in Canada, if you wanted to complain, you actually have to go to the privacy commissioner. You don't complain directly to the company. You go to the privacy commissioner to complain, and then they have to launch a whole thing. Um, What's happening uh, in Europe is is people are, they are requesting their data. That is happening because they've suddenly realized they can. And the bigger one is this right to erasure, which is you're basically saying, I want out of your system. I want you Mm -hmm. to delete all the personally identifiable data you have on me. And I want out of the system. But again, that means companies have to be able to locate everything they have on a specific user. And a lot of them aren't set up to do that easily. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another interesting legislation that's coming out is eloquent. California, which is the Consumer Protection Act, it currently is targeted only at residents of California, but that is very specifically to be able to opt out of having your data sold. And those people will be able to sue the companies directly. Mm. So we'll see, like, again, you and I are in the same boat because it's like, yeah, I guess I could ask for this, but I don't know what the rules are. But in California, if they don't like what they see and they're not getting the responses they want, they can sue the company. Gotcha. Okay. Because yeah, you do hear it when you're talking to large companies in Australia, like, oh, go here for our privacy act and go here, call us up if you don't want to privacy. I've just never done it before. So I was just intrigued by that. But anyway, moving along, where do you see the biggest gap in this area at the moment? And regulation compliance. 
Yes. I think, yeah, I think that the biggest problem is the understanding. Most of privacy is currently being managed by law firms or counsel within a company because it is a legal framework. And again, to get it right, you have to go back to the technical foundation of what you're doing. So Mm -hmm. if it's being driven by, there are some amazing technically adept lawyers, but if it's being driven by the legal perspective, sometimes the impetus isn't there to get the foundation right. Again, they're asking the question, could you pull this or could you do this? And they're like, yeah, we could. Great checkbox. Mm -hmm. So there's a real lack of understanding on how to implement it from the bottom, from privacy by design and privacy engineering perspective to get that piece right. And can you provide any advice on how companies can address this gap moving forward? So the privacy by design principles, which have gone kind of global, are like seven principles that it's it's part and parcel of user and security. So one of the things is to to data map your data is huge, and it's a it can be a big task for a lot of companies. But you really need to know where you're pulling data in, what data are you pulling in, where you're storing it, and who has access to it, and by creating that map, again, it could take a day and it could take weeks, but by bringing in your teams that work with the data and understanding where that data is coming from, you could quite quickly look at it and say, we don't need this, or this looks like it's not secure. Uh, And that'll give you the big picture of whether or not you've built that foundation properly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the last question I'd love to get your opinion on because you are the global security compliance queen is what's on the horizon for global security compliance. What's the, what's your insight into the evolution of this space? Uh, More and more countries are creating their own privacy acts. Most of the privacy acts that we have are very dated because they exist from a time where we were pulling things like HIPAA, like health information or financial information that Mm -hmm. used to sit in file folders behind someone's desk. Uh, And the rules generally still apply, right? Only limited access and make sure you like rip up the paper when you're done with it. But Uh, Most of them are very dated. And because of the success of GDPR for the European Union, a lot of other countries and regions are going to probably jump on board to have more stringent rules. There are a few exceptions of some countries that that like to have the data because they use the data, um, Mm -hmm. like the governments use the data. But most governments seem to have a more user-centric approach and they really want to protect the individuals. Some of these other regulations, legislations coming out, do you think this is going to take time? Uh, We're probably not really equipped in terms of infrastructure to manage this. We need to bring out more regulations, which means that overall, do you think this is going to be time before we have so many that people's backs are against the wall a little bit? Yeah. I fully appreciate that people resent them because their work, right? You've got a functioning business and now you've got to go back and do this. But I always look at it like licensing for drivers. I mean, it's a pain. You've got to go and have a test and you've got to put signs on all the roads. But look at the number of accidents it prevents to to be able to actually put the safety of drivers ahead of the pain it is to put the street signs up. Um, it We have regulations on everything except the internet. Like we have regulations I know. on everything except for the way we use data. It's, it's, it's very much an innovation versus protection. Um, and, and we've allowed tech companies to evolve so quickly, 
because they were able to put that innovation hat on and not care about the data mm-hmm. uh, and we're behind. And I, if, if the regulations had come out a decade ago, even we'd probably be better off. It's just, people have become, it's a habit now to be able to release what you want when you want to release it and not have to worry about anything else. Mm, but that's a really good really, point. Yeah, we just we need to go back and consider the individuals because there is real risk of harm now that's happening to people whose data is being taken and used and abused. I had a conversation with someone yesterday actually about this sort of just saying like, what do you think is happening in the market? And we we did speak about privacy, but I also said uh, the internet, in all fairness, hasn't really been around for that long and it's grown exponentially and we ha- probably haven't really looked at how that's going to evolve. And it's just sort of evolved in front of us. And then we're like, "Uh Oh, there's a problem. We now need to go and fix it with a band-aid solution. And hopefully that band-aid right. stays on for, for long enough uh, before there's another problem that uh, pops up. So I think it's, it's interesting to see. Uh, I agree with you when people sort of say around the regulation side of things. I, I mean, I've worked in a financial institution myself. It's heavily regulated. But in saying that, speaking to other people in the industry as well, especially people who are quite senior, sort of saying without these regulations and legislations, it would mean that we are a lot more vulnerable and open for attack because people are probably just not going to do anything about it because they don't have to. Yeah. I think the other thing is it's like a buyer beware thing. It's users don't know enough about tech. Like if you look at the internet of things space with IOT, uh, the number of people who are buying IOT products and plugging them into their home networks without a thought, like, is it safe? Is, can someone hack it? Should I even change the password? Do I need to update the software? Um, we've immersed an entire world into tech and most of the world is actually not tech savvy enough to know what the risks are. So as people in the tech industry, I think it's our responsibility to better handhold the world and not, and not be like, well, that's their problem. And this buyer beware thing. It's like, Mm -hmm. people didn't know, like with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, I knew where the setting was. It was hidden and buried under three things where it would allow you not to share your data. People are, well, everyone knew because they were using Facebook. They didn't know. They didn't know. It wasn't marketed to them. Right. And they're not. They're not knowledgeable. And even tech people I know didn't know where that setting was hidden. So it's, it's, we're putting too much trust in, in the people and the users to, to know that they have to protect their own privacy. And I don't think that's fair. I agree when you say the the onus needs to be put on this industry because I had a conversation with someone the other day and they're like, oh, people just don't really think about stuff. I'm like, no, but I don't know about, I don't know, investment banking. So there's probably, it's heavily regulated. There's things in there that you need to know about, but how would I know that if I'm not working in that space? It's right. just that technology has become so ubiquitous that every single person has social media, online banking. They have Alexas and Googles in their house, but all of their kids have mobile phones and they're all on Instagram and all these types of things. It's just that not every single person does investment banking or they do this uh, law or something like that. It's become so mainstream now that unfortunately it's not something that people are necessarily talking about. And that's something that we want to do at KBI as well to actually educate the Australian public, but also people across the globe about what does this actually mean for them? Because 
who's guiding them through this process. And I get called up a lot just from friends who are outside of the security or tech industry because they just genuinely want to know and they don't really know who to go to. Yeah, absolutely. I think too, I mean, if you looked at car manufacturers, I'm sure when somebody came down and said, hey, you, it's now legally required for you to install seatbelts, they all rolled their eyes and went, you know how much money this is going to cost us because now we yeah. have to put seatbelts in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same kind of thing. And, and especially from the tech perspective, it's very much uh, ROI. It's all the return on investment. So mm-hmm. um, if I put this product in or if this feature in, what am I getting back for it? Well, putting in privacy, that's why I feel like if we can continually frame this in a way where we say, look, in the long run, um, this is going to save you money. It's just, we're only now getting those numbers. We're only mm-hmm. now being able to say, here's the fine you're going to get. Here's the loss of income you're going to get because your reputation is going to be ruined when you're breached. Here's mm-hmm. like the cost of, of getting back up and running when you ransomware shut down your system. If we can highlight the actual bottom line, then we have a better sell from an, an industry perspective in cybersecurity to say, here's why what we do is important to you. Uh, but from a just, hey, this is, you should do up your seatbelt. Like <laughs> nobody wants to do it. It's just more work. Well, I agree with you. Kat, this has been awesome. I think I've learned a lot of things just from you doing your thing. So I really, really appreciate that. And I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate the wonderful wealth of knowledge that you brought to this interview. But lastly, if people do want to reach out to you, how can they find you? Uh, so my company is Binary Tattoo and Binary is for all things digital and tattoo is for the permanence of everything we're sticking online. Uh, so you can find me there at binarytattoo.com or cat at binarytattoo.com or you can find me on my own site, which is catcode with two O's.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kat. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.